Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Todd here. It's October. It's what we've been waiting for. Bird season starting up here in New York. And I'm hanging out with Mark Norquist today here, chatting a little bit about the fall and bird seasons. Mark, how are you today? Doing well, Todd. Been looking forward all summer to this time of year, and especially this year. And so the season's opened up here in New York. I've seen on social that the grouse and woodcock season opened up in Minnesota a couple weeks ago and all across the upper Midwest and throughout the Northeast. You know, it's fun to see the seasons opening up. How have you been? You know, doing well. This this last weekend, I was actually over in Wisconsin for a uh, a mentored hunt, and that that was great. And uh, been getting some reports from different people who are getting out for this early season, and and they're seeing a lot of birds, which is great. And then this last weekend was was waterfall opener too. The the duck hunting it wasn't quite as good as some of the other reports for for upland, but uh, but still people were finding some birds. That's cool. Yeah. So you were talking about grouse camp last weekend. You and I were chatting about it recently. That sounded amazing. Sounded like, what did you tell me? There was like a hundred people there, a hundred new hunters or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not a hundred new hunters. There was a hundred people there. There was probably, it was probably about a split 50, 50 of new and, uh, and, and, uh, experienced hunters, uh, functioning as mentors. But, uh, yeah, it was up in Eagle river. Uh, Wisconsin, and this was an event hosted by Rough Grouse Society, and it was really great to see all these new hunters getting out in the woods. Had uh, several people I got to sit down with and record for the Modern Carnivore podcast as new hunters and as mentors talking about the experience, and uh, saw a good number of woodcock. Both grouse and woodcock were were harvested, but uh, definitely I think the woodcock was looking pretty good. So it seems like they're coming through. Sounds amazing. And speaking of Rough Grouse Society, you just had a podcast with Ben Jones, right? How was that conversation? Yeah, if people want to check it out on the Modern Carnivore Podcast, sat down with Ben Jones. It was actually a conversation we had this last winter uh, at Pheasant Fest. It was great just to get his perspective. He's relatively new in that role, uh, started last year. And uh, he's been doing a lot of uh, progressive things with the organization, switching things up in their model and really targeting for the future of conservation and how they can effectively help promote uh, healthy forests. He's got a very compelling strategy and their position in the conservation community and what they're doing. So yeah, definitely check it out. It's a pretty quick podcast. I think maybe like 45 minutes, something like that. But it was, uh, it was good to hang out with him and, and chat about Rough Grouse Society. So cool. Ben is a great guy. I've had conversations with him. And I can tell you as somebody that's very interested both professionally and personally in healthy forests, that what they're doing around that initiative is is really cool stuff from my angle. I just joined recently and uh, I'm excited about what they're doing in the direction that they're heading in. Speaking of which, I've got a pretty good podcast coming down this week, and I'm excited to be talking about it. And uh, so I had the chance last week to catch up with Katie Burns and Ashley Peters, who both live in the Twin Cities area, right? And so Katie Katie is an outdoor educator, and she's a foodie, and she's a bird conservationist. And she has so many good things to talk about, all the things we want to talk about 
on the Outdoor Feast podcast. I mean, we were talking about wild food and cooking as an entry point. Uh, We were talking about Katie's perspectives as somebody who didn't grow up in a hunting family, who is a non-hunter, but who has accompanied Ashley and her friends on some hunting and who certainly gets involved very much so with the food aspect and has a big interest in sourcing food responsibly and locally. And so along with that, just all sorts of perspective about building inclusive communities and how Katie gets people outdoors in the Twin Cities and keeping it fun and interesting. I'm pretty stoked to have this conversation. I think folks are going to like it. Yeah, I think I think she's great. I've met her a couple times. Obviously, Ashley's done a lot with Modern Carnivore over the years, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing the conversation you guys had. It's a really unique and cool perspective. And with her knowing Ashley so well and being in the same circles, it's really cool to listen to her story about how we can put welcome mats out for new hunters and anglers and what works in the birding community. And then, of course, Ashley's always full of great perspective on stuff, too. I mean, she's just got so much practical advice. I'm thankful for both of them for being on the podcast. Before we get into that, I just want to, I have to ask, you've been so busy with Hunting Camp Live. The Upland courses look amazing. Tell us a little bit about what's happening over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of work this last year. We launched Hunting Camp Live officially uh, last winter, and uh, the timing in some respects couldn't have been better because it was right on the, the front end of, of COVID. And um, really the whole value of Hunting Camp Live as a, as a learning portal is to bring education and training in the hunting world right to people at home. And, uh, and so this, this fall, we launched a new signature course and it's learn to hunt upland birds. And, uh, basically the format of it is I go around the region and meet up with friends of mine who are foresters, biologists, gunsmiths, uh, gun ammunition manufacturers, et cetera, and talk about all of the key issues that people need to understand if they're going to get into hunting. And, and obviously it's focused on upland birds, but if somebody's interested in other types of hunting, it could still be really valuable. So it's been pretty exciting to see people um, get into this, watch the video lectures. So each of these, it's a very video centric model. So it's very easy to consume this, this content, but there's also downloadable PDF guides for each lesson. There is a private community group where discussions are occurring and the new hunters are able to ask questions of the dozens of experienced outdoor mentors who are part of the community. And so it's it's been a lot of fun, a lot of work, but a lot of fun here. And I'm looking forward to a lot more people uh, getting involved with it this fall. It's a great platform. So folks, check it out, Hunting Camp Live. Keep an eye on the ModCarn website. Yeah, and, uh, Hunting Camp, and- yeah. They can, go, they, they can either go to modcarn.com or I should have mentioned it's huntingcamp.live. So that's the extension of the, of the website, huntingcamp.live. That sounds great. So check it out, folks. You'll be glad you did. Uh, anything else before we get into a great conversation with Katie and Ashley? No, I, I, I think it's great. I think people are going to really enjoy hearing this conversation. All right. So uh, without further ado, here we go. And uh, as always, folks, uh, have fun in the outdoors. Be safe. And thanks for listening. Katie Burns, Ashley Peters, welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Excited to, to be here. It's great to have you and looking forward to this conversation. So I'd like to start with some introductions. Okay. 
And to set the stage for the listeners, I'd like to just say a couple of things in terms of just like setting the framework for the conversation. So for the listeners, what I'd like to say is that for Katie, Katie is an outdoor educator and a bird conservationist and someone who lives a very active outdoor lifestyle in one of the biggest metro areas in the Midwest, right? So Minneapolis, St. Paul, you're in this metropolitan area. You work every single day to get people connected to nature and to the outdoors. And on top of that, you have some incredible cooking skills and an increasing mindfulness um, to incorporate like local food and wild foods into that kind of conversation, into what you're doing, sharing with your friends. So we're going to be talking a lot about that in the conversation here today. And I'm going to say with Ashley, for those that know Ashley, know probably what I'm already going to say. But if you're not familiar with Ashley, I'm going to say that Ashley's an incredible conservation leader who is like right at the nexus of so many important parts of the outdoor space, not only in Minnesota, but beyond. OK, so like there's so many different communities that you span in terms of public affairs, bird hunting, fly fishing, conservation corps, boundary waters, that you have this incredible, unique skill set, in my opinion, to like connect dots and to be able to to work across communities, which I think is so powerful. It's really cool stuff. So Katie, let's start with you. And if you would, please just introduce yourself a little bit for the listeners, talk a little bit about your background and your outdoor journey and like kind of how you got into outdoor education and engagement and, and bird conservation. And then we can, can do that with Ashley and then we can continue the conversation. Sure. So I was born in Western South Dakota and was really lucky to have the Black Hills as my backyard, essentially. So I was born in Rapid City and lived uh, six years in Casper, Wyoming, before my family moved back to the eastern side of the state in South Dakota. And I have always, even as a kid and well, well into adulthood, been just completely enamored with the outdoors. I would much rather be outdoors than inside. And so the house that I grew up in in Rapid City was backed up right to what to me just looked like rolling hills and prairies. I'm sure it was some, you know, a farmer or rancher or something like that. Their their land bordering uh, a developing community. But uh, I was constantly getting in trouble for the snakes I was bringing in the house and uh, the toads that I found. And even at one point, a goat that had gotten loose from the neighborhood farmer. And I walked up with the, the goat that I decided was was now mine. Um, so I had some interesting experiences growing up. And then when I was graduating high school, trying to figure out what is next, love science, was really interested in being able to share that love with others. And so I thought, oh, I'll be a teacher. I'll teach science. That'll be fun, right? And so I uh, started college, and once I got further down that path and got into uh, the traditional classroom, I figured out that, you know what, there just wasn't going to be enough for me. And I was very fortunate to have uh, a college advisor who saw the interest and the passion that I had in outdoor spaces, and she caught me after lecture uh, one day and said, hey, I've, I've got this graduate student that... Um, has this research project that they're doing. And it's in the grasslands. It's all about, you know, bird species, uh, looking at native plants and 
uh, land use and he doesn't necessarily know all the birds. And I know that you don't either, but I think you'd really enjoy this. Um, and that was my introduction into conservation, into the, the research world. And that bug bit me hard. It was amazing. Uh, the experiences I had and, and I think this has continued to be kind of that theme into my, um, adult life as well, where, you know, I had an opportunity to choose the territory, um, as one of three technicians that were covering the entire state of South Dakota for this study. And being out there and seeing the things that you're seeing that nobody else is coming up over the hill headed to one of my research sites, I stopped my car and I watched for probably a good, you know, 20 minutes, three kit foxes playing on the gravel road ahead of me. Nobody else there. Walking out to some of my transects in the, the tall grasses and having a nesting duck explode up from between my feet right in front of me and watching the grasslands come to life uh, at sunrise. I mean, these are experiences that I will never forget and talking about them now, I'm, I'm right back there. And that project, even though I was a field technician and I was helping this graduate student and I was getting, you know, the, these experiences that I, you know, I never anticipated I would have, it was a part of something bigger that this work was going to be used by uh, Game Fish and Parks to really help to inform them about what was happening in the grasslands and what was happening uh, with adjacent land, uh, private landowners that were uh, managing for conservation or agriculture, uh, ranching, you know, what did that look like? Uh, that this was helping to paint that picture, to give them that updated picture of what was working really well um, what needed more attention and and helping to um, to really fine tune that pathway for you know for conservation moving forward. So that was my kind of my first taste of of conservation and being out in the outdoors. And from there, I mean, it started with grassland birds, and then other advisors uh, got my name and number, and suddenly I was getting out into the Black Hills and helping to support elk population studies and handling flying squirrels and putting little backpack transmitters on them and learning how to track. So it uh, kind of took off from there and then eventually took me to Minnesota uh, where I continued that work in education uh, at the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota. And that took me all over the Midwest and then continuing to work in the research realm, doing an avian influenza surveillance study and uh, looking at Newcastle disease and a number of other things that uh, impact our waterfowl, but also can have an impact on turkey farms and, and other poultry industry. So that's great field work experience, right? I mean, that's so cool. I, I love that. And like you grew up in a beautiful landscape like South Dakota in wide open spaces, which for somebody from the East like me is so intriguing. And so you had the opportunity, you grew up in a beautiful place. You had a mentor that kind of stepped in and said, Hey, Katie check this out. You may be interested in this, which is kind of cool, your advisor. And then you just followed through that and had some amazing fieldwork opportunities. And for Ashley, like, so, and we're going to get back to Katie because I have a bunch of questions with Katie on your wild food and like how that has started to influence um, your, your outdoor journey. Okay. But like Ashley, 
you and I have known each other for a little while, and I've heard your stories about working in places like the Boundary Waters and, and being up in Alaska and being down in Louisiana, which is so cool. How did that all evolve into what you're doing now in terms of bird conservation, community outreach, and engagement in communications? Well, first of all, it is wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful to talk again. As you mentioned, I think we met three or four years ago out in Washington, D.C., out there to advocate for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which I'll make a plug for here. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think everything started for me through a conservation corps. And I I really want to emphasize that because the things I am doing now probably would not be happening uh, for me if it wasn't for that first foray into the woods, surrounded by peers, guided by folks who were willing to mentor us, you know, and everything that I do now from kayaking, camping, hunting, fishing, it all started with gear, getting used to being in the outdoors, understanding how to be in inclement weather, knowing how to prepare yourself for a trip. And so that really laid the foundation for me to then go into any kind of outdoor pursuit and feel like I had a really good foundation. So I I just want to make sure to emphasize that because I think these programs, when we hear people talk about how do we get more youth involved and how do we think about the future of conservation, these programs that get young people involved and doing on the ground conservation work, it makes a huge difference. And my career in conservation is a testament to that. So I'll start there. (laughs) Uh, I'll fast forward to the present uh, and say that, you know, right now I am about to start a position with the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society as their director of communications, which I am very, very excited uh, to get started and to, to work with the many supporters, chapters and members they have across the country. You know, I think with conservation, like you said, there are so many similarities between different conservation groups, and we do set ourselves apart by emphasizing this group focuses on rough grouse, this group focuses on ducks, this group focuses on water birds, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, when we think about what we have in common, it's so much more than what we have different. And so to what you were saying earlier about I've, I've kind of got this cross-section of, you know, I, I used to work for the Department of Natural Resources here in Minnesota and state parks. I worked for Audubon for the last seven years. Now I'm moving over to a conservation group that has more of a hunting and forest management focus. Um, it really all ties together for me because the future of conservation is something we all have to come together on. And I, I really believe strongly that, you know, Katie and I continuing these conversations and you and I continuing these conversations and the folks listening here and being part of that conversation, it's conversation is a big part of conservation, right? <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll cut out there for a second and uh, see if we can get Katie's take on some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for sharing that. And I'll say that, like you touch on a big point, Ashley, about commonalities. We all have our own perspectives coming in with various conservation groups. But when you look at the the commonalities, like there's certain things that we can all align with, and that's what we should focus on. The other thing I'm going to say is that 
there's a lot of assimilation that can happen. And like, that's part of this conversation too, is like with your experience and Katie's experience as an outdoor educator in, in like the birding space and, or other outdoor education of talking and having a conversation about assimilating similar challenges, similar issues, and like how, how we uh, approach our audiences and, and get people outdoors. Cause that's really what we're trying to do is connect people more. And so Katie, so I follow your Instagram and you recently posted something about pipe caviar. So like this wonderful looking cheddar pierogi with sauerkraut and kielbasa and pipe caviar from a pike that you caught. Tell us a little bit about that first. And I've seen some of the other food that you've been experimenting with and it looks amazing. And so just talk about the food angle and how that's been incorporated into your broader outdoor lifestyle. Sure. So I, I've always really loved, really loved food and I, I love cooking. And I think that definitely started with my family and started with my dad. Uh, I remember, you know, hearing him get up, I'm a very light sleeper. And so I would hear him get up in the middle of the night to check that bread dough and working on those giant cinnamon rolls, the ones that are the size of your head as a kid. And, and he loved to cook and he was really good at it. And my mom also made, and to this day, still one of my favorite meals that we have as a family, and I love it when she makes it, is that pot roast with all those carrots and the potatoes. And like, that was our special thing. So growing up, food was definitely kind of a, a central piece of the time that we spent together as, as a family, um, kind of that breakdown at the end of the day. And I continue to be really interested in it, in cooking um, and food and also exploring the, you know, the intersections and the weaving of, of culture and food and, and, you know, the role that it plays in, in families and in larger cultures. And as far as the, you know, looking at wild game and, and fish, that is something that I've had kind of an interesting introduction to. And it centered around travel, um, around outdoor focused travel and, uh, not necessarily hunting and fishing. As you know, um, I'm not currently a hunter. And so some of the experiences that I've had with food and introductions to wild game, they didn't come from my growing up. I didn't grow up in a household that um, that hunted and fished. And in the places that I lived in, um, in South Dakota and in Wyoming, um, there is kind of this assumption that, oh, well, you grew up in South Dakota or oh, you were in Wyoming. Well, of course, like that, you know, that's when you paint that picture of, you know, of growing up and, and a childhood in those wild spaces, which I spent a lot of time in, uh, there is that assumption that that is, that is a part of, um, mm. a part of my childhood and a part of my youth and it, and it wasn't. So, I can remember the the first time that I had rabbit and I had taken some time uh, to do a little trip for myself. And I went to Italy and the Tuscan region and a volunteer that I met at the Raptor Center, this incredible woman that taught ancient Roman law, taught cooking classes <laughs> in Italy, but she lives in the U.S. and just, I mean, does whatever she wants, just an incredible person. I had mentioned to her that I was, you know, planning on on traveling in Italy and I wanted some pointers and some feedback from her. And she had said, Well, you know, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be studying in the archives in Florence, because you know, that's a thing that people do. She said, Why don't why don't you come visit me and stay with me? I'll be staying there right, you know, during the same time that, that you'll be there. 
And so as I'm staying with her, my job is to go out and collect some ingredients for the day and to pick up the wine for the day. And she tells me what the dish is. And she tells me that we're going to have rabbit. And I'm like, oh, all right, uh, this is the thing that I'm going to try. And she's telling me about the region that we're in and how they source the food um, and how this is a you know traditional dish in such and such an area. So I'm really excited about it. And she prepares this, uh, it's a whole rabbit carcass. <laughs> I can call it carcass, right? Is that appropriate in cooking? I don't even know. So there's this whole rabbit and it's, you know, it's been skinned and cleaned. It's in this gorgeous, this really large cast iron pan with herbs and oils and um, other root vegetables and just beautiful. And that experience, that place, sharing it with this, this person that I was just getting to know was just incredible. I, I will never forget it. And as I'm watching her prepare, you know, this meal and as we're sharing it and uh, sharing that, that time in that place, I remember thinking, you know, I want to, I want to be able to do this again. I want to be able to make that. Um, it was a really positive experience with wild game. And, um, and that didn't stop there when, uh, just a couple of, a uh, couple of years ago, I was traveling in Greece and it was a birding trip. And so I was going birding in the Peloponnese region and decided for the first time to hire a guide because even though I'm a birder, I don't know all the birds everywhere. So the guide, who is now um, I consider a very good friend of mine, as we were working through this mountainous area, um, we he he had planned where we were going to go for lunch, and said, "Oh, this family owns this little restaurant in the hills. Their food is so good. I always, you know, I always bring guests here." And so, really tiny little roads, um, the most beautiful mountain villages in, in Greece that you see them and, and sometimes you're not even sure that anyone lives there. It's very quiet. You're not seeing anyone. It's the wild uh, spaces, the trees, the rocks, um, all of the plant life is just kind of taken over and it does what it wants to do uh, in some of these areas. And the uh, the gentleman who seats us on this gorgeous outdoor patio, he, he owns the restaurant, he lives there, and he also hunted the boar in for the main dish that he cooked <laughs> that he really wants us to have. And I've never had wild boar and I don't really know anything about it. I don't know what if I'm going to like it. I didn't speak the language. I was really relying on my uh, on my guide to kind of help uh, bridge that that language barrier. Uh, but I thought, you know what? I'm here in this place. I want to try this. And, you know, I just didn't want to be rude. And he was so excited about this boar that he had hunted, that he had cooked and had told us that, oh, I forget the nuts now. I think it's is it walnuts. Shoot. There's a nut that also grows um, on the trees in this valley and uh, a really high concentration of them. And that was also a part of preparing that wild boar. And we had a slice of the most beautiful cake that was also uh, made with those nuts. And I regret that I didn't take any photos of it because the photos of some of these experiences, they can help take you right back. But I also didn't want to be rude. Um, it was just a very personal experience. And traveling in Australia, eating some of the fish that are local to that area. In each of these places, the the food is a part of the culture, it's a part of the experience, and it has been a part of truly getting to know 
where it is that I am visiting to be a to be a guest and to to learn and to take those things in. So food has absolutely been a major point of inspiration and that driving force for me that has started to lead me toward that direction of that question of, well, how, how do I source the ingredients for my cooking? Everything from, you know, your herbs and, and all of your plant material to the meat when you choose to eat those. And it's, it's an interesting place to be. And I have to say, uh, because I, I really have enjoyed my experiences in getting to, to eat wild game that others have prepared. And I find myself you know, looking for opportunities to incorporate that into the cooking that I do in my own kitchen for myself and for people that, that I, that I care about and that I know will appreciate the food. But this sort of this gray area feeling a little bit like a tourist, um, in a way in a, a space that is from my perception is occupied by, by hunters and anglers and even though I have fished and I have harvested my fish, I also still don't necessarily feel like I know where I belong. And so that's, I don't, it's a, it's just something that I'm struggling with lately is, you know, kind of where do I belong? And I have this passion for the food and I'm asking myself all of these questions about, you know, is, is this a dish that I can, that I can procure and, and how would I do that? And, Am I, am I headed in a direction where I want to hunt and what do I want to hunt and how do I want to do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, and coming up in a household where, you know, I, I wasn't hunting and fishing, not even having, having any idea of where to start is, is also kind of a barrier to that step forward. So the dish that you mentioned with the, the pierogi, um, with the Northern Pike caviar, that was an amazing treat. I had no idea if I was going to like it or not, but our friend uh, Julia had mentioned that she she makes this northern pike caviar and she oh she just gushed about how much she loves it and and she described the flavors and the texture and what she's paired it with and that kind of passion is exactly what gets me going and gets me interested in thinking I I need to try that and so I had promised her if I if I lay in the fish if I get a pike and if there's an egg bag like I will absolutely I will save it for you you can have as much as you like, but I have to try it. So that that was a really great experience. And having having friends like Ashley and like Julia honestly has been an absolutely priceless and incredibly valuable part of, of my life and part of this journey. It's been a little harder um, under the you know COVID uh, restrictions uh, with getting together, but uh, over the past couple of years and getting to know Julia and getting to spend time with Ashley, we have had kind of a ladies wild game dinner night. And I love doing that because it gives me an opportunity to ask questions and hear their stories from the field. And I get to bring something to the table, which is my skill. But even that, I feel like I'm not, I'm not bringing enough. Um, so it'll be, I definitely would like to talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of hear Ashley's perspective on on that experience because I, I love those wild game dinners that we have together. Um, but sometimes I also feel like I'm not contributing enough or contributing, you know, in the, in the same ways because I'm not the one out in the field kind of doing the, the harvesting of like the centerpiece. Let's get Ashley's perspective, Ashley. So what's it like for you? You're hearing Katie 
describe like her feelings about contributing in the wild food aspect of everything? What's it been like as her friend and as a community member? What's your perspective on it? Sure. Yeah. And I really wish that your audience could taste the food that Katie makes because um, trust me when I say that she is contributing plenty (laughs) with the dishes that she makes. Um, We had a dinner not long ago and she brought this just amazing pastry with, you know, that was overflowing with rhubarb and blueberry and it was perfection. So um, I (laughs) want to get the foraging in there too, because Katie certainly knows her way around fruits and vegetables as well. <laughs> That's why I was hoping we could do this podcast in person, quite frankly. But <laughs> I know, I know, I do too. <laughs> so, so keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, and what I'll say, you know, I haven't been hunting and fishing for all that long either. I just started fishing six years ago. I just started hunting about four, yeah, four years ago. And as as I was you know, learning how I, Katie and I constantly kept in conversation about how it was going and things that I was thinking. And Katie actually came with us on one of the hunts. She just walked along. But, you know, when I was describing what it was like to be out there in the field, you know, walking in a wide open prairie or ducking branches and tripping over things (laughs) in the grouse woods, which I personally really enjoy, you know, these are things that Katie and I talked a lot about and she wanted to experience that. Um, She didn't maybe feel like she was quite there yet in terms of actually hunting, but she wanted to see what it was like. And, you know, I hope that more people do that, offer that option to their friends and family and offer that opportunity to just come walk along. You don't have to, you know, because hunting at the outset, if you are truly brand new can be a really big lift, you know, the firearm safety course, the deciding what gun to buy, where to go hunting, who you're going to go hunting with, how comfortable you feel. You know, I think sometimes I hear in the hunting space, this conversation about how do we get someone to hunt? And I think we have to back up sometimes. And that's where the food aspect is so important, right? Because you're including somebody on the community side of things. So those wild game dinners, really an invitation to anybody to participate in this and to say, we care about where our food comes from and we care about conservation and we care about our community. And so this is what we're doing together. And then there's plenty of time to grow. You've got that community around you to help coach you as you're deciding to what degree you want to be involved in hunting or angling or foraging, you know, um, there's plenty of amazing places you can go to find mushrooms. So I think, you know, for me, it's been a lot about making sure that we're, we're taking 10 steps back before you get to hunting and fishing. And we're thinking about why does anybody join anything? And it's usually because of the people And in the outdoors, it's often because of the scenery. And so making sure that people are aware of the community that's there, the support that exists for them, and the opportunities to get outside, um, that's that's really where I start with things because that's what got me into it. You said so many important things there in terms of taking 10 steps back for one and just like putting out a, a welcome mat for people around the food aspect, I think, for one, and to have an open conversation and to having a meal and sharing a meal. And it's not just what 
it's on the table. It's what the conversation around the table and it's the community around it. And then I think like we don't talk about that enough in terms of just like inviting somebody to come along and just be along with you to just say, hey, you know, put the welcome sign out and say, come on, you know, let's go out. Let's get some fresh air. See what it's all about. Let's hang out with the dogs and you can get a feel for it, whether you choose to hunt or not, you know. So I, I think that those kinds of welcomings are are really needed and we don't talk about that enough. And so Katie, you already started sharing some of your perspectives about like some concerns that you've had. Somebody with your path, with your background, with uh, a passion for the outdoors, somebody that's working in that space, that's helping others connect, that has such a strong connection to food. What do you think of, in addition to what you've already said about hunting and angling, what are your thoughts? Like when, when you think of hunting and angling, what do you think of? Well, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's a big question. So when I, when I mentioned before that I, you know, I didn't grow up in a, in a family that, that hunted and fished, I was, I was surrounded by it. I remember in Wyoming, my next door neighbor, um, it was an older couple and, well, older to me, they were older than my parents, I guess. I don't really, <laughs> now I don't even know that I have a frame of reference for their age, but I, I was always very inquisitive about the neighbors and I would walk over and when the gentleman was working in his garage, which he always seemed to be, I would, I would wander in and he was always really welcoming and he knew that I had a curiosity for wildlife. I had a, an old VHS tape that my parents got me that was like wildlife, you know, of Wyoming and they would pop it in and I would just fire off the names of the animals one after another in advance of the narrator, which I'm sure was obnoxious to them now that I think about it. But so I would go over to the neighbor's house, uh, wander into his garage and all up on the wall, there are all of these different mounts of pronghorn antelope, elk, deer. There were fish mounts, which I guess that's the thing you keep in your garage Maybe your wife doesn't want them in the house or you have too many in the house. I don't know. I never saw the inside of the house. But he, he could see, thinking about it, he could see that I was interested in wildlife. And he wanted to share that with me. And I, I knew that he, when he went hunting, he went on horseback. So, of course, I was like, yeah, I'm there. We're going to ride horses. We moved before I had the opportunity to go out with him. But what he saw um, was that I was interested in wildlife that I wasn't off put by any of the mounts, that I was curious, that I was asking questions, that there were horses involved, which for me was a huge bonus because I have been nuts about horses since I was old enough to identify them. But I, I think that I didn't necessarily have an understanding of or the sort of that that concept of the process and the experience of of hunting. You know, some of the questions that someone who is considering getting into that, even at a, a young age, the act of taking a life and what is that experience like? And, you know, what are you thinking about leading up to that, you know, that first time in the field? I didn't, I didn't have the answers to those questions because, you know, I never got that far. So then that experience that I had with my neighbor that was helping to kind of form that image of what hunting was like, that was sort of left open a little bit. And I, I think that it wasn't until probably when I started to do that field work, that first field work job that I had uh, in the grasslands in, in South Dakota, where I was learning about the kind of the, the role that hunters in, in that case and anglers as well um, play in conservation when 
I was out there collecting that information. Um, I was also learning about how it was going to be used and all of these connections. And uh, to be honest, before before that experience, I don't think that I had any idea that hunters and anglers played a major role in conservation. Um, without that work that happens to manage these wild spaces so we have the incredible diversity uh, that we do in the flora and fauna and protecting clean water resources, um, we certainly wouldn't wouldn't have the opportunities to enjoy those outdoor spaces and to, you know, potentially take home a meal for yourself or for friends or with family. So that has also been a part of that process and that journey to understanding from my own perspective, the role that hunting and fishing plays in multiple layers of community. So that that has been interesting to me. And I really, I really enjoyed that. And I think, you know, for me, for someone that, that's considering, how, you know, how I want to harvest my food, how I want to source my food from, you know, foraging to, uh, to fishing to hunting, understanding that that hunters and anglers help to support conservation in a number of ways helps me feel that much better about considering becoming more involved in, in that community, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's a really good point. And so like what I'm curious about is as an outdoor educator, you work day in and day out on getting new people connected to the outdoors. You posted the other day about this extremely cool community art project in South Minneapolis where you're doing like a mural on a, a building with these amazing bird paintings. And then I've seen some stuff like kayak paddling, like birding on the Mississippi, like some really cool stuff. And so you're in a metro area. You're trying to get new people involved in birding. And demographically, I've looked at some studies. Like I saw like Fish and Wildlife had a study back like 2011. So it's pretty dated now. But at that point, I'm just like broad sweep of the brush. I think there was like 47 million birders, but demographically it was like, it tended to be older people like 45 and up. It tended to be people in a certain income brackets, but probably more diverse than hunting and angling, but you're still working, trying to get communities involved. And so what's your advice for hunters and anglers in terms of what's worked for you and what the hunting and angling community can assimilate into putting the welcome mat out for people and getting new people engaged. Like, because the point you made about saying, I didn't realize that the contribution was there. I think that that is a very legitimate thing, like that a lot of people just don't, because if it's not in your day-to-day -day space, it's just not, it's just going to not be in your thought process. How do you feel about all that? What can hunters and anglers do? Oh, that's a great question. I have, <laughs> I've been thinking about that and, and, you know, I was, like I said, I was so excited for this conversation and have been thinking about, you know, about some of these things. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife data that is out there. There was a uh, another survey that was completed um, both at state levels and at the national level in 2016. And um, the data for, for that was actually just released this last year. Our state of Minnesota um, doesn't have the um, really clear data at a state level, but really the national picture, the national level data is just as valuable, in my opinion. And what we are seeing is that, you know, in, in terms of how people are saying that they are spending time recreating in the outdoors, we are seeing this incredible growth 
and people who are wildlife watchers, who are wildlife photographers, who are birders. And in my mind, they, you know, those all kind of kind of go together. And that is in some ways, in many ways, kind of an untapped market. So when you mentioned, you know, how do I get people interested and involved in birding, I just kind of take the birding piece out of it. So birds, we find them nearly everywhere that we find people. They're super accessible. Uh, There are a number of species, especially in the areas that I'm working in, that are really easy to observe. So they're kind of that low-hanging fruit. When I think about taking someone out and get it, giving them a positive experience in the outdoors, using birds as, as a way to connect them to those outdoor spaces, I'm not going to take them out and try and show them warblers, you know, that are migrating through. First of all, they're going to get something we call warbler neck, um, having to look straight up into the canopy and trying to see these tiny little rockets that are bouncing around and won't stay in one place for very long that's going to be frustrating. And the chances that that person is going to want to try that again, probably pretty low. But when I am looking for those opportunities to connect someone to the outdoors and really leveraging birds and their accessibility and their beauty and how charismatic they are, it's, you know, I'm looking at, well, who's missing at my table? Who, you know, who is it that I want to invite? And what does life look like for them and what might be some of the barriers to getting them outdoors? Is it transportation, um, a location that is in close proximity to where they live, you know, considering costs that are involved. When I'm taking people out and we're checking out birds, we're also we're also learning about and experiencing everything else that's that's out there. So the first thing that I do is not expecting them to a have those expensive binoculars um, or be be able to to use them right away. This process for or this pathway rather for getting people into the outdoors and really learning about it, just being present in that space and and taking it in. It's not linear. It it can be it can be kind of web-like and all over the place, and that's okay. That's actually a really good thing. So. I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm just starting to dip my toe into getting a sense for what the hunting and fishing community is doing um, in terms of outreach and education um, and sort of that welcome mat that you mentioned. What is that, that common entry point? How, how are we bringing them into the fold? I'm aware of the R3 Council. Uh, our friend Julia serves on it. And that's about as much as I know about it. So I'm still learning. Uh, I started to receive, now that I'm following backcountry hunters and anglers, I started to receive some invitations to some outdoor activities that are centered on family. And I think that's great. But circling back to the how, when I say common entry point, kind of this place that you can bring someone into the outdoors and help them to enjoy it, there are multiples. And some of the things that have really worked for me is when I've identified who that target audience is, what part of the community do I want to bring out and share my joy and my love of these spaces? I think about, you know, what is something, what is something fun and maybe a little bit silly that I could put together that just pairs with birding and with being outdoors. And that's where ideas like paddle birding came up. Uh, not paddle boarding, uh, but utilizing this incredible program that uh, the 
National Park Service, Mississippi Park Connection um, here in the, the metro area put together, where it's, it's basically a library for uh, these kayaks to get out on the Mississippi River. And I thought, oh, wow, this is huge. This is an opportunity for me to bring people out on the river and to see the city in a way that they have probably never seen it before. And to also have the opportunity to get a sense of place and to be introduced to the, the wildlife and this wild space that is right in the middle of the city. Uh, they don't have to own any of that gear. It is something that we can do in an hour. And I will tell you, I have had such great success with that. I have had people that I don't expect to ever see them again because that is almost like a catch and release where I brought them into this great experience. They had so much fun. I made sure that they saw that turkey vulture on the beach with its head deep in a bloated dead raccoon enjoying its food. And we talked all about it, about how cool those <laughs> birds are. They're nature's clean and true. I, I, had, I had a small group of people that were laughing and smiling and that was their favorite part of that day was the dead raccoon with the turkey vulture uh <laughs> you know <laughs> neck deep in in this in this animal it was amazing so the the goal wasn't to turn them into birders it wasn't to make sure that they could identify all the birds it was to have fun and we did it in a way that just made it easy for them to you know to get in there and to try it to dip their toe in the water and have fun other ways that we've been able to to really successfully bring people into outdoor spaces is to look at, you know, what are they already interested in? What are some of the things that we can pair with mm -hmm. this activity? And, you know, maybe for the, you know, for hunting and fishing, the goal isn't right out of the gate to get them right out into the field and, you know, have them hunting. Give them mm -hmm. a sense of place. Give them an opportunity to be there in that moment and to learn about the different components of what makes that place so special. Why are you out there? And why does it matter? And the experiences that you will get, those are things that will stay with them. And that helps to lay the groundwork, lay that pathway in the direction that, that you hope that they will take. I had some students from uh, one of my urban elementary school partners that I had been working with. And um, we went out to do a field day. I had spent a day in the classroom um, teaching them about some of the birds and the plants and you know, pollinators that we would see going out to a designated Audubon important bird area along the Mississippi River. And I was taking them to a place that I knew there was an active bald eagle's nest and our timing was just perfect. Um, so we're out there and I'm making sure the kids can see it. It's a bird that um, is perched, you know, right on the center or right on the edge of the nest. And they're, they're seeing it. It's cool. It's this charismatic bird that everybody recognized. And, um, you know, he tells them cool stories about how Benjamin Franklin, you know, he wasn't a, he wasn't a big fan of that bald eagle who was always stealing fish from his comrades. And the kids get a kick out of that. But the best was when one of, uh, one of the fourth grade boys is watching this eagle and the eagle starts to tip forward a little bit with his head and that tail starts to elevate a little bit. And this bird, poops is not an accurate description of what happened <laughs> uh, in the raptor world. So anytime I get a chance to talk about poop and wildlife, uh -huh. that's gold for me. So this kid sees this bald eagle 
shoot this white mess. I'm not even kidding you, like at least six feet. And the eel grows. All of the other kids are watching. And I'm like, yes, fist pump. This is going to be great. So we talk about how in the raptor world, you're either a dropper or a slicer. And that bald eagle is a slicer. He tips that tail up and he slices it way out away from the nest. And we talk about why. So the difference between uh, a great horned owl that might be a dropper who is a cavity nester and how that actually plays a role in keeping the nest clean, um, keeping insect away from those babies that are a huge biological investment. My goal was not for him to remember any of the environmental you know, components and the uh, the natural history of the bald eagle. The fact that he is going to remember <laughs> that bald eagle slicing that mute, he's going to remember these things, more than six feet, that's it. My goal is accomplished. He had fun. He saw a bald eagle on this giant nest uh, that looked like it was as big as his mom's Volkswagen. And uh, that that is the thing. That is the experience that gets them hooked. That's fun. I didn't turn him into a birder. He did, he's not going to pass, you know, the next test on conservation biology, but he did love being outside. He connected to it in a way that undoubtedly he will never forget. And certainly I won't either. I love that so much. <laughs> so like, <laughs> that is so funny. But so like what you all said, I mean, you said so much there, but like in terms of assimilating, like you talked about, we're not trying to turn them into birders overnight. We're trying to find out what their interests are. We're trying to make it fun. We're not trying to get them into all this gear all over at the same time. Kind of dovetails back into what Ashley was talking about, about taking 10 steps back earlier too. And I think you can very easily say, you know, you can take a lesson from that as, as hunters and anglers and, and say, hey, look, just like what we we're just talking about, just get people outside if they want to come along with you. Make it fun. Don't try to turn them into hunters overnight. Don't confuse them with all the gear. Don't try to like make them understand like all the different species and stuff like that. Just have fun. So my daughter is young. She's in third grade. And we have this conversation. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's not about getting kids outdoors, you know, and, and whether she's going to go hunting with me. And so like, ultimately we have a lifestyle that's a very personal decision of whether she chooses to ever hunt or not is her own choice. And it's not a small choice, but in terms of just like, you want your kids to maybe enjoy hunting someday, take them camping, go for a bike ride, take walks with them, go look at squirrels, not trying to do everything all at once. And that's what I hear you saying. Ashley, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'll just say really quickly um, that, you know, the two things that came to mind are that Katie's hitting on this point that kids love gross things. They are absolutely fascinated, like the grosser, the better in in some cases. And so that was a perfect example of that. And so, you know, to remind people to not shy away from that when, when it comes to the outdoors identifying poop is a pretty legit outdoor activity that kids love to do, right? Also tracks, but, you know, like I said, the grosser, the better in some cases. But, you know, I, I also think the, the other thing is, um, you know, find some people online who are doing this really well. Christine Peterson is the person who pops into mind for me. She's out in Wyoming. She has a very young daughter and she regularly posts just little vignettes, kind of a, a letter to her daughter about what they're doing and what she's learning and Christine's thoughtfulness in her posts, I think is really 
poignant and something that, you know, I'm learning because I don't, I don't have young kids and I'm not trying to necessarily take kids outdoors myself. And so learning those lessons from Christine and hearing what she's encountering and how she's going outdoors and the things that her daughter is bringing up and learning that that's really instructional. And so I, I think anybody can benefit from following others who are also learning. How do you get younger kids outdoors? How do you make sure that it's a good experience for them? Fun and something that they will look forward to in the future. Yeah, for sure. That's great advice. And Christine, she is so thoughtful. Um, I follow her as well. It's like, she's really great. And, you know, along with those opportunities to get the kids out, falls right through with adults too. It's like finding things that they're interested in. So it doesn't have to be just kids. It's just like our friends who maybe are up for the weekend. In my case, they're up from the city. They're up in the Adirondacks. They want to get out, you know, do some fun stuff, go down to the beach or whatever, you know, have some fun, get outside. So, you know, the birding community, are we ready to segue into just like a couple of themes about the birding community in 2020? 2020 has been such a crazy year on so many levels. I think it's worth pointing out in the wake of George Floyd's murder, in the wake of uh, Christian Cooper in New York City, in the wake of all the pain and divisiveness and racism and just so many things going on. The birding community, in my opinion, is doing so many good things, so many things right, like Black Birders Week and so many other things that I think other conservation communities could benefit from and and learn from a little bit. What are your perspectives on that from what you've seen? in that space? So uh, this actually um, kind of dovetails really nicely from, you know, what we were just talking about and um, something that I wanted to make sure that we talked about. I think that with all of the challenges that we have been navigating um, and, and facing this year, I mean, it's been a, it's been a tough year um, across the board without a doubt. It's an understatement. I think something that I have that I have noticed is that there are a lot of voices that have not been given a place historically that are telling you, telling the collective you that that they have a lot to say and that they are willing to to tell you what it is that they need and what's missing, what isn't there, where they are at, why they haven't necessarily been represented in certain places or felt like they were welcome in whatever area they happen to be talking about. And, you know, to Ashley's point in referencing, you know, looking online and and being able to see an example of someone who's really leading the way, I think I think this the same is absolutely said for, you know, some of these groups that are sharing their voices. And that are telling you what's missing, uh, are telling you what is important to them, and they're sharing their histories and their experiences. And those in my mind, you know, in the work that I do, that is absolutely my target audience. That is who I want in, in, in my world and at my table. And that is who I want to share, you know, my joys of the outdoors with. And so we have this, this opportunity now, and especially with all of the ways that we can access and share information and communicate with one another, um, we have this opportunity to listen. Um, listening is, is absolutely the first thing that should be done, and it, be, it can become a conversation. And I think that there are opportunities for reflection for all of us in, 
you know, the different types of work that we do and, and how we recreate uh, to use that information and to use this opportunity to reflect on how we can do better and how we can be more welcoming and be more sensitive to, you know, some of these experiences that are deeply rooted in our in our history. I think acknowledging that and being willing to be vulnerable and to listen, that those those are really key pieces. And I think about some of the groups that that I am following that I'm, you know, actively trying to to learn more about are, you know, are finally starting to get more attention in the in the media as well. Um, outdoor Afro is an, a wonderful mm-hmm. example of that. Um, Latino Outdoors, another great one. Uh, they have a great social media uh, presence. And um, I've just been overwhelmed in such a positive way by the work that they are doing and the conversations that they're having and how much they're willing to to share in that vein. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think that when we think more, you know, we talk so much about access, right? But like we limit when we when we talk about barriers for people to get in in the outdoors, I think access comes out a lot. But like, and Ashley and I've had this conversation in terms of expanding what access really means, because it's not just geographic access on the ground. It's not road frontage to places to hunt. That's important. That's a foundation. But it's it's access to community. It's access to to people. You know, in terms of the opportunities, like if, if you believe in public lands as much as I do or as much as you two do, it's so logical to take that next step to say then that some members of our communities don't have the systemic access or it's, they just face more barriers, you know. So I think like those are the conversations that aren't necessarily easy to have in the hunting and angling space, but I'm encouraged by people who are having those. Um, and I do think the birding community is doing a great job with it. Um, Ashley, do you have anything to add to that? Well, you know, I can I can really only speak from my personal experience with things. So I guess what I'll say is that coming into the hunting and angling space, if I walk into a room that's full of men, there's an implied, there's something implied there that, you know, are women really welcome in that space if they're not present? And I think that applies to any audience, to anyone that you're talking about, whether it's families, whether it's people of color. Um, whether, you know, like across the board, just if you walk into a space and you don't see a lot of people like you, you are going to question whether you're welcome there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've definitely felt that as a woman in certain spaces. And so I would just encourage people to remember that and and to keep that in mind as as they're listening and as they're having conversations about these issues. Yes, it's really well stated. And like, I hear it again and again, it's like the visibility, like if if there's not a visibility there of people like me, like it's going to make me question whether I belong there or not. You know, what's that space? Is it a safe space for me? You know, so that totally makes sense. Um, so thanks for including that. I appreciate it. How do you want to wrap up? Do you want to circle back around to anything on the food? So part of, you know, my, my journey through, you know, the cooking aspect, something that's really been interesting for me is exploring that that intersection of food and culture. And I've really enjoyed learning more about local food and the history of food and culture from incredible people like Sean Sherman, the sous chef, and 
there is an Instagram feed that I've really enjoyed learning about, um, about hunting and fishing and cooking, like the cooking aspect, Elevated Wild. Right. That's a new one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, so I've had these opportunities. I was so excited about the sous chef uh, and this book that was coming out a couple of years ago. And I pre-ordered it, got that book and settled in in the winter. And I, I opened up the cover of the book and read just the very first text, this, this paragraph. And I got the really good goosebumps that told me, this is where I want to be. Like, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to learn a lot. I, I feel like I'm going to be inspired to get into some of the foraging to, you know, be thinking about, well, how, you know, how, how can I, how can I make this in my kitchen? How can I share this? There might be some recipes that there's, it's just is beyond me right now. Um, and others that I'm probably going to fall in love with. And I've really loved exploring that book and, and bringing that into my kitchen. And I think many of us have done this where we go down this rabbit hole on, you know, on social media and Instagram is a big one for me right now, uh, especially being, you know, being stuck at home a little bit and trying to find other Sean Sherman and wanting to see more diversity and to learn about different cultures, um, trying to do searches for indigenous chefs, but I'm, I'm looking for more. I'm interested in learning about more from chefs, cooks, you know, foodies, people who, uh, who cook wild game and who do forage that don't necessarily identify as a cook, but it's something they really love to do. And considering certainly the theme of this podcast and, and your audience, I'm wondering if that might be an opportunity to put a call out to them. I mean, what, where are they getting their inspiration? Uh, what are, you know, some of those people um, that they are aware of the chefs, the cooks, the foodies, the hunters who love to cook and, and, uh, and forage. I, I would just, I would love to be introduced to more uh, mm-hmm. within that realm. And um, like I said, kind of being out on the outside, not, not currently being a hunter. Um, I don't always know where to start. I'm so glad you brought that up, Katie. That's great. And, Elevated Wild, that platform is amazing. I definitely think that that's an opportunity to get some feedback from the audience on what where they're finding inspiration. I'll tell you what, I have kind of gone a bit retro in my food reading right now, but like I am a huge fan of MFK Fisher. And MFK Fisher was this woman. Are you familiar with MFK Fisher? So MFK Fisher was this food writer in the early 1900s. So she was kind of like the Julia Child of her time in terms of just like a little bit before that, she's one of the best food writers I've I've read. And so she lived in France and she wrote so many books. Um, one of the books that I absolutely love is called uh, Love in a Dish. And it's about her time in uh, Provence. She lived in like, uh, Marseille for a while. And uh, she also uh, wrote uh, Consider the Oyster. And she can write so well that I would probably not read a book about oysters by anybody else, but like she can make it sound really interesting and like really cool. And another writer that I've been reading recently is um, Richard Olney and Richard, I'm reading this book right now that I'm extremely excited about saying uh, he wrote a book about Lulu Perrault, who was one of the proprietors at Domaine Tempier in Southern France. So um, there's this, it's called Lulu's Provençal Table, I think it is. And so talking about culture and food 
that whole book is this celebration of life and wine and food and the good stuff. And it, and it draws out. It's not just like the, the recipes. It's just like the spirit behind it, how they write and who these people are and where they draw their inspiration. Those are pretty cool. I, I made a uh, flanard here earlier this summer. That was a Richard Olney recipe, which is like a plum flan, basically. Uh, but more of that, for sure, in terms of just sharing what people are excited about. It's great. And so let's circle around to let's circle around to the fact that this is an election year and the fact that, you know, oftentimes for hunters and anglers, there's some trepidation. We want to go out. We want to enjoy the things that we enjoy. We love getting outdoors. We love getting our boots dirty, but we don't necessarily like calling our senators and like giving them a hard time about things that are really important, like Land and Water Conservation Fund or Great Out. Great American Outdoors Act, but Ashley, what's your perspective on all of that in terms of what's at stake this year or in general and why people should think about getting involved? Sure. Yeah. Um, like you said, as an election year, it's pretty hard to miss politics. And I think often there's, you know, there's a culture, especially online, I think, of really just shouting very loudly. And, you know, I understand, right? People believe strongly in things. To nitpick a little bit um, with what you said, Todd, yes, certainly hold people accountable for what they're not doing. But guess what? You should also call your legislator and say thank you when they've done something that you're really excited about, you know? So in that respect, if people follow through on their promises, if they invest in conservation, that that's something that's going to get their constituents excited. And I think that's a, a big key for me is reminding folks of we can you can still be really excited and passionate and want to get outdoors. And, a, you know, phone calls are my favorite because um, you just don't, legislators don't get as many phone calls as they do mass emails and things like that. Um, calling your elected officials, calling at the local level too. Don't forget that hyper-local level um, folks need to hear from you too. Um, and making sure that you're reaching out and communicating what you appreciate about what's happening and how funding is being spent. Because when we look out on the landscape of conservation, hunting and angling, especially right now, um, we're seeing a crisis. We're seeing a gap in the future of funding and with hunting having declined by 50% since the seventies, fishing goes up and down, but relatively it's stagnant compared to um, what the growth could be. You know, we have to think about how to engage everybody in the conversation about how do we pay for these places that we care about and the wildlife that we want to manage and ensuring that ha happens into the future. And so that's really at the heart of it. That's what it's about is what do you believe in and voicing that and talking about what it means to you personally, uh, both to your elected officials and to your family and friends, because you are the person that they're going to come to. If you happen to be that outdoors person that knows, you know, the most in your family or friend group, you can be a resource for the people around you to, to understand the context of some things that are happening and pointing them towards resources that can help them understand more. So um, I'll just leave it there, but, you know, be positive too. 
<laughs> I guess. Be positive too is a great message. Thank you for sharing that. It's <laughs> great advice. I, I deeply appreciate it. So you both are on social media in terms of where people can follow your your work. Katie, your your handle speaker burns, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think you've got the I think you've got the the upper edge on Ashley on that. So like what I was gonna say, like I think if Ashley changed her Twitter handle to Excipiters and like showed some enthusiasm for Goshawks. Like you, you would see like a big spike in followers. That's unsolicited advice. I, uh, I kind of beat you to it in a sense. Um, <laughs> my, uh, so now that I'm switching a little bit in terms of focus of career, um, my handles are now grouse lady. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok as grouse lady. I yeah. love it. I'm, and, and congratulations, uh, by you. the way. I'm so excited for you. I'm excited for Rough Grouse Society. And Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing a wealth of information that I know the listeners are going to love. It's such an important conversation. And I love it. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Such a fun conversation. And it brought together um, so many of my my very favorite things. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.